I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Ian Andrews. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Amor Toll's novel, A Gentleman in Moscow. If you've come this far with us, you know that already, though, because we are here to discuss the second half of book three, which means that we are well into the second half of the novel itself, of the book itself. Ian was just saying, as we were getting started here before we officially entered the um, the zone that is the show, how much good stuff there is here. So we're going to talk about that here in just a second. Ian, how are you though? Doing great. Yeah, I'm excited to get... This is a cool job, guys. I get to get online and talk with my friends. That's right. so fun. So thank you to all you listeners for uh, being willing to listen to us do this, which is what we would do even if you weren't listening. <laughs> right. I mean, I just do it for the money because I'm... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait. We're getting paid for this? There's so much I mean, a money. little bit. I <laughs> uh, love it. So, Ian, how are you feeling about the Seattle Mariners right now? Dude, pretty pretty elated. Although, confession time, they broke my heart so many times as a child that I kind it's of... hard to trust again. You've been guarding you it. Yeah, yeah I've been again. guarding... That's exactly right. I've been guarding my my heart. It, my heart has grown calcified. It's been calloused over. How many more mm-hmm. C words can I think of to describe the hardness of my heart towards the Mariners? And now well, it's complicated. You know, to love it all is to be vulnerable. A wise <laughs> man right. once said that. So I've been, I've had like half an eye on the standings all season. And whenever one of my friends wants to talk to me about it, I'm like, if you jinx this, like I will never forgive you. And so I really didn't allow myself to care until like yesterday. Mm. <laughs> oh, this is a big day then. Some emotional so healing is big. taking place. Yeah, some you, healing. Yeah. You, except the loss yesterday. I know. But, but they... It's not over. Yeah. But you know who they, didn't uh, lose had Ian? A huge with his open the other heart day. again. My open heart. <laughs> That's a winner. Yeah, yeah. it's a big deal. It's is a big it? deal in Seattle right now. Yes. <laughs> well, Heidi... How are you? Do you have any sports ball that you yeah, would like to okay, uh, ad- I do address? Because we have uh, been going to some Nuggets games and Jack got to take a picture, a selfie with Jamal Murray the other night. It was very exciting. Mm. I got, yep. It I was just really got a text exciting. that said, Jack White has peaked. He's peaked. <laughs> it's only downhill from here, but he's still, he's right at the top of the mountain. I'm ashamed to say, Heidi, that that was the first time I had self like like all at once realized that you had the miraculous foresight and bravery to name your son Jack. Yeah. When his father's last name is White. Yeah. I just think that's I mean, it was so a impressive. Conversation. We just figured again, he's going to peak at some point <laughs> and live up to his name. And his selfie with Jamal Murray seems to have been it. That's the moment. I love uh, everything about dreams. that. <laughs> I, was, I have just. I have a lot of questions. One, his mother saying that his her her son peaked by taking a photo with someone else who is that. I peaked. mean, I, that's Jack. Jack feels that he has peaked. Oh, I think there's he brighter peaked. horizons ahead. You, okay, okay, you're optimistic about his future. I mean, yeah, I am. <laughs> he did sleep through his math class this morning, so I don't know. Maybe oh, the, it was. Peak. Honestly, that makes me that makes <laughs> me feel better about him. Honestly. <laughs> Um, Would it be appropriate if with a name like that, he didn't sleep through math class? Yeah, yeah come on. that's right. true. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So he's probably building guitars in his closet. Maybe Were you guys so. White Stripes fans when he yeah. was born? Um, okay. I mean, just like regular level. We knew the name. Yeah. But it, yeah, yeah. we felt that he would be worthy of it. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like Jack and White are super 
like uh, unusual. Names. It's not like you right. named him. You just like we're gonna call him Bono. No last name. His he's just Bono. Like, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. We are here to discuss people that do have weird last names. We're here there to discuss go. good transition. A, a gentleman in Moscow, and hi. Heidi said after Ian made his comment that this is a book that builds. One of the things that I was thinking about as we were reading this section is that the book shifts in its priorities in some ways during the second half of part three or book three, I guess it's technically called. And it becomes quite uh, preoccupied, I suppose, with politics and philosophy and history and what it means to be Russian and what it means to be American. Um, There's a whole... Uh, a whole conversation about the differences between Russians and American cult, you know, Russian culture and American culture and the notion of preservation and what it means to destroy something for a greater good and all those sorts of things. So Amor Tolls is, is asking us to contemplate these big ideas. This is going to sound like a leading question or perhaps like um, a, a question with uh, a thesis implied behind it. I don't mean it that way. But this is what I want to know. Is this book up to the ideas that it's asking us to contemplate? Is it, is is the... I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, I was going to say, point. is it worthy of it? I don't really need it that way. You know, like, it, it is what it is. But, but like, it, it has begun to ask us to contemplate big ideas, you know, big political and philosophical and philosophical, philosophical ideas and so forth. And And Ian, you seem to be all in on that. So for you then, is you, you think like the drama, the novel itself is living up to the questions that it's asking? I don't know. That's an interesting question. I, um, I'm i all in in the sense that uh, there's chewing to be done. I like a book that asks me to chew. Um, and I think the imagery Which is Which really is an beautiful. appropriate word given this book. Yes. Thank you. Beyond, I the, thought beyond so too. the metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I like that he that he's after big game whether he brings it down or not is a really open question for me at this point. Um, he seems to thrive in characterization. Uh, but as I've already noted in an earlier episode, there are moments where his imagery and illusions fall a little flat in the sense that they feel like he's, um, he's holding our hand just a little much and not really trusting the poetry of his writing to get his point across. And, um, I think especially when you turn to philosophizing in a work of fiction, that becomes kind of the case of death. Um, show me, don't tell me, I guess, is kind of kind of what I'm after. He does yeah. a decent job of that, I think, in these two. I, I call them in my notes, uh, Mishka Part 1 and Mishka Part 2. Hmm. Um, obviously, some really cool conversations. And I think that character has become the locus of his, at least in this section, of, of those philosophical questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but he hasn't landed the plane yet. And... Landing's the most dangerous part. So I guess we'll see. Is it? I guess so. I mean, it's controlled falling at a high rate of speed. I feel like it's got to be the most dangerous part. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I really like this question a lot, David, because I don't know the answer to it. Um, I think that... Same, which is why I prefaced right. it by saying it's not a leading question. Yeah. I think maybe not. I think maybe the book doesn't, isn't quite up to the forces it seems to be confronting, but I mean, and you all know, I really, really love this book. Um, And I think it kind of goes 
back to what you just said, Ian, which was really good about showing, not telling. Um, he has to tell us stuff in order to make the book rise to the to the forces of, you know, the political and philosophical and religious and family and relational questions that he's raising. And anytime you have to give so much information rather than letting the story carry it, I'm not sure that that qualifies as the book fully being up to what it's contemplating. The same way that, and I'm, I'm specifically thinking of this in terms of other, um, in terms of Russian authors that take on these questions like there's not really any um telling to the same extent in something like the brothers k right the story carries even itself. if there are long philosophical exactly like, monologues. yes yes yeah. the story gives mm-hmm. you uh dostoevsky gives you no historical background but this but the weight of the tale and the telling of the tale and the complexity and the characters are more than enough to, uh, you know, take you under into this like Russian experience through the Brothers K. And I'm not sure that Gentleman in Moscow is doing that. Um, and and he's taking on those same kind of questions, the conflict between the East and the West, the conflict between generations, uh, the conflict of ideas, uh, the ideological underpinnings um, that are manifested in the characters in this section, Osip and um, Mishka for sure. Mishka is definitely the most Russian part of this novel, like for by a mile. Um, So I think that no, but that doesn't diminish the novel to me. I'm happy to be told in this yeah. charming prose about what he's trying to get at. Although I did see a lot more flaws in storytelling in this section. For example, all the characters talk the same, right? To David's point, they all sound yeah. like Amor Tolls. Whoever he meets in a bar has the same kind of turn of phrase as this, as Osip, right? And they're that, all so eloquent. <laughs> right. And and you can hear Emor Tolls talking to you. And I'm really, I like what he has to say. So I'm happy for that. I don't mind it. Same kind of thing with Wendell Berry, right? A lot of his characters talk similarly, right? But I love him. And so I think maybe the answer to my to your question, David, for me is a qualified, not an unqualified, but a qualified no, but I still enjoy it and like it and feel like it's good to read. And so maybe that's another, maybe that's like a yes question mark, but no question mark. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah. I, (laughs) I love that. I love that. And what I was thinking the whole time you were talking is that that really helped me sharpen this thought is that it's, it feels like there's two novels happening. One of them is the one where he's telling us where he's, what he's getting at. And I agree with you. I'm, I'm okay with it. Like I like him. He seems like a nice guy. I want to buy him a cocktail. Let's, let's have a conversation about what you think about the world. Right. I'd love to talk um, so to I don't him mind that cocktails. So much, but, I want to be his friend. Right? Wouldn't yeah. that be so great? He would like if us. you ever hear this, my dude, well, look us up. Like us we would love to have you said, on the show. But yeah. Well, we'll see. But the the thing where I feel like the novel actually shines and does rise to the occasion is maybe not where he intends for it to. I mean, he's he's out for he's after bear here, right? He's loaded for bear. He wants to talk about these these really big issues, but the parts of the book that are working for me to the greatest extent are the relational moments. 
are the characterization and the plot, to be perfectly honest. I mean, the moment when the Count steps out of the hotel for the first time in 20 years or whatever it is, and doesn't have any time to consider the implications of that because he's trying to save his daughter's life, right? Like, wow, that was really, really good. That works. And I think it might end up, for me at least, that by the end of the book, he has communicated something deep and resonant um, through those moments, through the plot that is related to the thematic ideas that he really had in mind, but isn't maybe exactly what he was going for. Does that make any sense? Yeah. David, what do you think about this? You raised the question. What are your thoughts? Well, I, one of the things I've been wondering is, is the tone of the book it, it, like there's a couple of ways of thinking about is the tone of the book suitable questions that he's asking is one question so does the tone suit this philosophical questions that he's asking um the other one of the story you know the the stakes of the story can can they carry the weight of the ideas that he is concerned with um, you know, you read Anna Karenin or you read Brothers K or whatever. There's the idea, but the ideas come to the fore only because the drama is carrying them. And here it feels like the ideas are being presented on top of the drama. That's and well so put. you find well a hard it's hard to 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 identify what the priority is and what we're supposed to prioritize as readers. Um, and so I, the questions are very interesting, you know, and like, if you just want to talk about, if we want to just get into the ramifications of what Mishka is saying, or these other conversations that the count has with all these different figures, um, they're all very interesting. And even like smashing them together in this section the juxtaposition of those scenes together is pretty compelling. But as a greater whole, that's the question that I have is like, do they fit into the same book? And you did say, Ian, you think it's kind of feels like maybe there's two different books. Uh, and I can't tell if that's because of, you know, the, the tone that we have been provided with so far is seems different than the tone that those are asking us are being presented in or if it's just that the drama that's surrounding them is not is not up to it like um you know they, he even kind of drops the line about um Anna Karenina and like the denouement in the Karenina right and the train and all that kind of stuff and it like makes you realize the stakes of that story and like the high drama of it like the the Shakespearean drama of it is is on a different level than what he's doing here dramatically. Um, and so, I don't know. I I asked the question because I'm not sure, you know, uh, as you both have sort of said. But but I'm definitely... I, it makes me unsure of what to think about the book exactly and what he seems to want to prioritize because it's, he seems to be shifting priorities which can meet, which could be an odd experience when close reading. You know, mm-hmm. it's the kind of book that if you're just kind of like drifting along with it, you don't really. It doesn't matter so much. 
But if you're kind of digging into it, then you begin to like try to think about, okay, what is it that he is actually trying to do here? And that's where it starts to become interesting. I'm not saying when I say that, that it's bad. I'm just, you know, he's trying to do some things that demand some tact and, and subtlety and like some fine stitching, you know? Yeah. The perfect analogy for this section with his emphasis on stitching. Really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> well, what were that, you going to say? You, yeah, well, it makes ahead. me think of two different things. Like number one, I feel like that, what the way that you just put it is the best way I've heard the complaint. This is not very Russian put yet because one of the, one of the commonalities in all these other Russian authors that we're talking about is the presence in their own actual lives of this, this amazing darkness and suffering out of which they're writing to bring forth these masterpieces, right? Their intimate experience with the travails of, of Russian culture. And so, um, and he clearly isn't writing from that perspective. And I'm not talking about necessarily personal tragedy. I'm talking about Immortals being an, an, an American who's alive right now in the richest country in the world, right? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's that. But then the second thing this makes me think is I wonder if this is intentional, because yeah, that's, that's very possible. It, and if it, if it is, like, it could be for a couple of different reasons. The first one that comes to mind is I wonder if this is a little bit of an indictment of academia um, and of, of the way that academia goes about asking and answering these questions, which is often so divorced from the individual's real experience of those philosophical ideas as they're worked out in relationships and in culture and in government and so on and so forth, right? There's a, there's a detachment. Um, and it could be that the Count is, and his story is somewhat emblematic of that in, in Toll's mind. Like he's writing to you and saying, you in your, your detached intellectual perspective don't have the tools to answer these questions. And we're going to play that out for you in this drama. You mean he is just saying that um, the reader does not have the tools to answer the questions that he's asking? Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not, I'm not planning a flag on this, but this, this is just what your comment made me think of. Like I, it does see, I, I like the way you put it better than the way that I did. I said, there are two different novels in here. You said the, the philosophical questions are laying on top of the plot rather than being thoroughly integrated with it. Um, I like that much better, but if that's the case, and if he did do it on purpose, if he's aware of this, then those implications could be really, really intriguing. I mean, maybe it's an indictment of of the culture that we're in right now and our attitude towards those kinds of philosophical questions. Do you mean our, um, like our, our meta discourse as a culture? Yeah. Like in terms of how we, it's an, it's a, it's an indictment of how we talk about literature. Maybe I, I was thinking more philosophically and even politically, like maybe especially politically, um, that there's a, there's a sense in which the, comparatively wealthy and comfortable um, are at liberty to discuss politics all they want. And Mishka is not because he's in a concentration camp where these things are real. Right. Like, and so I don't know, maybe in my own experience, this is one of the things that makes the Russians so attractive as authors and so difficult for us to grapple with. Um, when you hear the story of Dostoevsky's life, uh, he had a position from which to say the things he was saying. Mm -hmm. And we kind of, as readers can only hope that he's as good a communicator as we give him credit for, because we pointedly don't have the position to say the things he's saying, not about human suffering generally, because all suffering is suffering, but about 
the specific personal impact of these political ideas and these philosophical things carried out in culture. Um, and I, I, I can see tolls orbiting some of those concepts, perhaps. Uh, Heidi, go ahead. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think one thing that tolls does really well in this novel is I, I, I can almost is is presenting like a point counterpoint to every position that he raises through the characters. And what I mean by that is that he gives us Mishka who's progressively disillusioned and, uh, and taken under by this regime that he used to believe in. Right. Um, but then on the other hand, but, but it's not, but the novel doesn't, just give us like poor Mishka, right? Because it also gives us Osip, who is a powerful Bolshevik who maintains his belief, even though he's still, even even through, even with the Count's presence, kind of presenting a more aristocratic vision. And even though he loves all the American movies and all that stuff, which is really kind of a really fun subplot there. Um, and he's But he's cynical about them until he meets the noir. Right. Yeah, and then he Bogart totally doesn't get it. Like his whole, like he can only think of film in terms of propaganda. So he doesn't understand how how a free nation, he does, he doesn't get how we could make any kind of film that indicts its own culture. Right. And the irony of that is that then he is the conversation, this very complex and interesting conversation about whether Russia destroys, is tearing down its house with its own hands. Right. And, and he, and he is a sophisticated, attractive character. Um, and and so he, but he's not disillusioned by the Bolshevik regime. He's gaining by it, but he still has some complexity to him. And so I think that I really like how Tolls presents these different ways of viewing the world through these very believable and fully fleshed out characters. The only way he falters, I think, is his own kind of enam sense of being enamored with his own turn of phrase and so the, the the voices are a bit stilted they don't they sound too much like tolls and not enough like the character um but uh they're just too clever like all of them are so clever um and so it's like a really well-written rom-com yeah yeah everyone's a conversational genius. i think that's a, what it's, it's kind of like watching like some HBO shows, like whenever you watch, like we've been watching Succession, which I cannot morally recommend oh, to anybody. And no, like that, but, but immorally that so we can good. recommend it all day. But but nobody <laughs> talks like that. And yeah, that's right. And like <laughs> the way that they talk to each other is so clever, but so it's not believable because they all but, sound like these super smart writers. Yep. And I think, the, I think there are two different time approaches, though. I think that's true. Like I don't, I don't think you're wrong about that. But I don't. I think that they are it, that that show is aware of right. its uh, uh, artificiality. Oh, it's super meta. Whereas I don't know that meta. he is trying to be artificial. Here. Yeah, yeah, maybe you're right. But it does. Come, well, yeah, that's the question, yeah. right? That's, like, if, yeah, that's it, what we're just talking about. Go there ahead. are moments where this feels like, um, where this feels like artistic fan fiction, just a little bit. Like it's so drenched with illusions and brings up so many other genres. I mean, we've talked about jazz already. We've talked yeah. about newspaper columnists. Yeah. We've Which, talked and about I actually films. think that this is a strength of the book in a way, because it is a book that is, it is, it lacks the cynicism of modern 
fiction. Yes. Because it it it, it is drenched in affection for those genres. Well it's not trying to like undercut yep. them. And so I think that's that is a strength that can be a yep. limitation. Sorry, no, I no, that's great. That. I, 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 I think that. that's a perfect way to end that thought. Um, it doesn't bother me is it, what I would have said next. Like I see this about it and it doesn't bother me because it is, um, oh, I don't know. It's full throated and I'm in favor. I'm yeah. in favor of that. So one of the questions I have is, do we think that the characters, like we have, we have Osip, we have Mishka, we have our Americano. <laughs> uh, what was his name again? Um, uh, William. I uh, What's the American guy's name? Um, uh, whatever it is, America Americana. We're gonna call him Americana. Um, he writes the letter at the end Richard. of the section to him. Richard, Richard, yeah. Um, and the thing that the thing that's interesting to me is that the count really isn't the one who is the purveyor of the ideas, right? Heidi's point about it there being a point counterpoint, I think, is really interesting. That's a great. That's a great observation because. You know, Mishka has his take. Osip, the Bolshevik, has his take. The American has his take, and and uh, the Count's kind of like, oh, okay, I can see your, I see your side, I see your side, Always I see your the side. Gentleman. But what if we drink? And uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Always the gentleman, um, except the one time he decided that he needed to have a duel. Um, but he's he is not someone who's going to like engage in a duel with any of these guys, right? But what what I'm, I don't know if I would say struggling with, what I'm interested in is I feel like those three characters are a bit shallow as characters. Like that they, like there's not a lot of drama tied to them. Like I don't feel a lot about them. Even Mishka, who I don't really know. To me, he is, he is anybody that, He's anybody that went through that, not a particular person. And so that I think that makes it difficult to tie the tie dramatic stake to him. Yeah. I feel like caricature. Can a yeah. caricature as our purveyor of, you know, deep thoughts? Like, can you have deep thoughts with a caricature that, uh, they can, like, can, can, can the, is that like a scaffold that's, gonna fall i mean i don't know ask virgil and beatrice i mean yeah i guess i would say yeah you can but it's but gonna, gonna have fall to unpack that <laughs> no we don't have time um it's gonna fall unless there is a substructure that is as heidi was saying a second ago believable real and and human right like that's why I think this novel does hold together is that the relationship between the Count and Sophia and the Count and Nina before mm-hmm. Sophia, those feel very natural and real. And um, and maybe I would even hazard a guess at saying this is Amor Tolls writing something he knows. And so those parts are, um, they're deep enough to hold up that philosophical conversation being carried on between caricatures at the top, for me at least. How do you think the book is asking us to draw a conclusion or or take sides in that that triumvirate of debate Mm -hmm. i think that the book is asking us to view our own culture i mean it tolls knows he's writing for a western audience he's not speaking for russia right and um he is but he's presenting russia i think as 
a lens through which we can see ourselves. And that's very clear in this section in to me that that he doesn't want us to look with any smugness on the Bolshevik revolution and its fallout and consider ourselves apart and better than that. He is, I think, asking us to see ourselves and our own potential and maybe even present mistakes uh, through the lens of, of this story. And I think he succeeds in that. I, I guess I think you're right that these characters are not fully fleshed out. I think a lot of that has to do with their voice. Like I just said, they're just a little bit too clever and it borders a bit on glib. Um, and uh, because I think in his earnest desire to embody and humanize the ideological uh, that he kind of puts a speech into these characters instead of their own voice, right? Um, but I still think it works. I think it works. Um, maybe to go back to your earlier question, does it have the stature that somebody like Dostoevsky has? No, but it doesn't need to in order to work. Well, and I yeah. think it does. Yeah. Um, I think it works in the sense that as I'm reading this, I'm I'm wrestling with the ideas that he's presenting and trying to see Osip's point of view, even though I'm far more prone to Mishka, right? And I'm I'm really I'm really trying to honor the point counterpoint thing that he's bringing up instead of just being opinionated and and so in that case I think it really works. Yeah, and we don't he doesn't need to be Dostoevsky as you said for a tour. He doesn't need to be one of like the 20 greatest dramatists ever. Right, but he's taking on to your to 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 bring back to like I didn't I didn't think that you were asking whether or not he has to be like that I I just think if you're gonna if you're gonna wrestle with some of these questions that have been like complex mm -hmm. during so foundational fundamental to the to our human experience in the 20th century it behooves you to try to rise to it and I see him trying to do that and in a way that I think is successful if not great in like the traditional sense of great so in this section it as ian alluded to that there's this key moment where he walks out of the hotel because sophia is hurt and he has to take her to he's to find a hospital and he's he's driving around town and everything is different right he's he's in this like milk cart or bread bakery cart and everything is different um why does why, why do you think tolls puts that moment and this key scene with Sophia where he puts it in, you know, in conjunction with these big ideas, like these big philosophical debates that he's having. Like, you know, he could have saved that for part four. He could have backed it up a little bit, and put it at the beginning of part three. I, I was just fascinated by that, fascinated by that choice. And obviously he's not here to say why, but I'm curious what, what, what you guys think about that. And maybe more importantly, what is the impact or the, so on the one hand, why do you think he that the impact whoever wants to go first? Oh, oh I, there you yeah, go. Yeah, I think that's a great, at. I got pointed at and he was like, it's you. Um, man, that's a really good question. For me, I think, and I'm going to sound like a broken record. Um, it does pull all of these ideological conversations back down to earth. 
Um, we've seen eight years pass. Sophia has gone from a guest to the count's daughter and uh, his relationships in the hotel have had to deepen because of that, because now they're sort of a collective in caring for, for and raising Sophia. Um, and I think we see all of his relationships deepen as a result of that. And this is the payoff where he gets to see that they have um, the idea that he rushes out of the hotel, which he's never even thought of doing. I mean, it's, it's actually fascinating. If you think about it, he's imprisoned here and he never has a thought of escape. The only thought of escape he has is suicide. Right. And that's early on. Like he pretty much just accepts his lot and stays in the hotel forever. And it, and it takes this, this shock and this potential tragedy to drag him out of the hotel. And, um, and obviously for an astute reader, he's in danger instantly. I mean, we know that there've been notes taken on him and that his interactions with Anna have put him on a radar and there's a dossier about whose daughter this is and where she's living. And, and so all of this is really, really dangerous. And what happens is his, his friends, even his friends in the establishment who are supposed to be his enemies, ideologically speaking, um, rally around him and care for him and care for his daughter. And um, I think the, that tension is bubbling under the surface in this whole section. Is his relationship with Osip or Osip or however we say his name, um, is that a real relationship or is this a captor relating to his prey? Um, is his relationship with Mishka damaged by all the years of distance? Uh, is, are his relationships with the staff in the hotel a bomb for suffering or are they a cause of growth, right? There's all these questions that we've been asking and now it's, it comes to a head for him as well in this climactic event. And we see him at the end sitting in his room and weeping, I think not just out of like the trauma, but also out of, out of joy and out of blessing at the way that this community that, that he has worked his way into has gathered around him and supported him. Um, so that's how, it, that's how it works for me, I think. I like that a lot. I think that's right. I also, I also think that this section has the count on his back foot several times and they're like funny and poignant and all kinds of different reasons that, Hey, kind of getting him off kilter off center, a sense of disequilibrium a little bit, uh, and showing how he will or will not, and somehow always does remain a gentleman. Right. Um, and, and that gentlemanliness seems to be sinking further and further, um, into his core, like not, not skin deep, but like it's, there is a gentlemanness to him all the way through, um, kind of through the mystery and, or excuse me, through the manners into the mystery kind of thing. And we get to see that in this section and, and his, and so this is his ultimate back foot moment, right? Like, what is he going to do when someone he, when Sophia, who, as Ian points out, is the most, um, profoundly human relationship of this novel. And it's presented with such tenderness and poignancy as it was with Nina. Um, and now Nina is gone. That little two paragraphs that describe how her disappearance is some of the most beautiful writing I've seen in a modern novel. It's stunning. It's beautiful, like beautifully crafted and just has this weight of emotion to it. And, um, and then, so I think that in, after like a series of like funny off kilter moments, then we have this ultimate off kilter moment, this 
profound disequilibrium. What, what I, that he is not equal to this situation. And yet somehow he is right. Like he doesn't know what to do, but he, 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 he makes the ultimate risk. Like he could, I mean, he could be a Zek for that. He could be sent to the gulag for that, but of course he does it without even thinking. Of course he does. Every parent would. And we need to see him. We need to see him like really grab hold of that sacrificial moment in the story. I like that. It also seems like there's, and this is, I'm taking this from the Mishka um, sections, part one and part two, both Mishka sections. There's this interesting um, question, I think from Tolls, that's going along under the surface. We've got Hitler and Hitler's progress towards the city being stopped by winter. And then he immediately draws this comparison back to Napoleon. And, um, and it at first feels like a meditation on Russian resilience but then I find myself left with it at the end with the suggestion that Bolshevism is just another attack on real Russia. And maybe the, the, the Bolsheviks will, will likewise fail when they meet real Russian people and the real spirit of Russia. And I think that that question gets an answer in the last couple of pages of part three, when all of these people revert to their humanity to being people, not members of a political party, to being a surgeon and a friend and a guy driving a, a, uh, a baker's cart and all these things in order to help this man care for his daughter. There's, there are elements of essential humanity that are rising above the fray, and one gets the sense those will tell the story instead of the, you know, the onslaught of, of Hitler or, or the Bolshevik Revolution. Yeah, there's uh well go ahead, Heidi. What were we gonna say? The the um well let's talk about the the just the idea of destruction, um, which gets talked about here. It, you know what is what is the the historical scene that he's talked this story that he's talking about, they they burn their own city rather than it be taken. And uh and then and then they're talking about, you know. That the the differences between America Americans and and you know, he's all these different conversations with people about it. Do you think that he is trying to create a sort of a uh, sort of scale of judgment? Are we supposed to, I mean, obviously he's drawing comparisons between these different peoples, between these different cultures. But is in doing so, is is that consider which one's better than the other? Or or whether one is better than the other. Yeah, I think that Ian's that, pointing this time. Yeah, I think um, that that kind of goes back to that point counterpoint idea I was bringing up before. I think he's trying to be fair and say, like he's presenting this crumbling culture around the count. Obviously, the count is the protagonist. Um, if if you don't have an opinion about the Bolsheviks before coming to this book, then the immediate opinion you're going to have is entirely negative. And, 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 and so I think if I were him, I'd be thinking I have to provide some kind of internal counterpoint that makes this question a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more complete. Um, if I'm, and so if I'm guessing, I'm thinking in this section, as he seems to be taking on these political questions, uh, not for the first time, but definitely for the most, definitely with the most depth, 
um, in this section, then he gives us some characters uh, that represent, that are seem to be attempting to represent the Soviet mind just as much as they are the Russian kind of traditional mind as well, the aristocratic mind. Um, and then that, I think that he does a pretty good job, but I also think that the book is so pro-tradition and that, that it's, that any, any compelling counterpoint is, is still kind of tinged with this sense of lostness of what has gone before. Um, but I can tell he's trying to humanize the Soviets and the Bolshevik kind of side so that we see them as people, not just enemies. Do you agree with that, Ian? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that's really well said. Um, definitely seems to be, I like the way you put it. He's looking around and going, well, this is the impression you're going to get. <laughs> Better find a way to offer a balanced set of characters. Um, my suspicion is that this Richard, what is his last name? Richard uh, Vanderweil. <laughs> Great literary name. Hats off to you. Um, Richard Vanderweil is the voice of Immortals, I think. Um, and when you say he's pro-tradition, I don't, I don't think you're wrong, but I think it might be slightly more nuanced than that because what the American says, and we've just had Americans set up for us by OSIP as this, you know, capitalist idea that's so opposed to the Bolsheviks and how could they possibly take such treacly treats from the cinemas and, you know, be sustained through a depression. This is ridiculous, right? Um, so the, the ideological opposition is really clearly defined. And then the voice of a real American steps in and what he says is, and this is also, I think, some of the best writing in the piece. He says, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that as a species, we're no good at writing obituaries. We don't know how a man or his achievements will be perceived three generations from now, any more than we know what his great, great grandchildren will be having for breakfast on a Tuesday in March. But when fate, or because when fate hands something down to posterity, it does so behind its back. Great line. Love that line. But the point of Richard's discourse here is that grand things endure. And they have done so in every era of the world. Um, and so I can sort of see tolls, like you said, Heidi, from a pro-traditionalist perspective, also injecting a little calm into the conversation between progressives and conservatives that has, as he points out, been going on since time was a thing um, and trying to tell everyone, hey, let's just calm down. Great things will endure. Grand things will endure. Um, and I, that seems to be a word of comfort, I think. If if the readers and indeed if the count can can grasp hold of it, why does that guy get to say that though? Maybe because Amor Tolls is an American. Like it, can I go just, on. What do you mean by that, David? I mean, it's like an an accidental meeting, and he puts this guy in the bar, and then the guy's like, "We meet him, and he's telling this sort of kind of like juvenile story, and he's like." leading the the pack of revelry right but then you know suddenly he's he turns into like you know william like i really like, like how you like the name william in this conversation no no <laughs> like uh, i'm thinking, thinking of the same um, thing like all all of a sudden he turns into like uh you know he's writing for like the national 25 years ago mm. um <laughs> he's like god he cut his teeth and, in Muscovite bars. <laughs> uh, 
So I just, I don't know. I don't, I'm confused about some of the choices that he makes, like why he decides to put Like you don't find that words. believable to put those like words of wisdom and kind of a thesis statement from some American guy in a bar. It's too relentlessly he charming. Does, he he doesn't like, charming. he doesn't, why did that guy, like that guy didn't, he writes this letter to him as if like revealing all this to him, to, to the count, but he never gave any sense that he was capable of that kind of, insight <laughs> previously uh so I, I i just don't i i'm confused i think by why this is maybe why i read him up like why he puts the ideas that he puts in these characters without giving us more of these characters like even mishka is kind of like i think a little bit under under Underdeveloped. I think, I mean, I think that that's the constraint of the novel. And this goes to your earlier question is, does the novel rise to the complexity of the ideas that it is attempting to take on? Like it's, it's, this is, this is a novel about a guy who lives in a hotel. The relationships are going to be inherently transitory. People are going to be coming in and out. Uh, And, and so that is, and and it and it goes to the question that we had about like do random beautiful actresses always just open hotel room doors and let their delicate their dress delicately whoosh off their shoulders no like <laughs> this story is full of absolutely unbelievable things that never happen that are entirely fictional and i i think that amor tolls is totally aware of that mhm and is asking us to just let these improbable moments be what he is giving them to us to be. So I think some American guy in a bar who happens to have the last word on Socrates with an impossible turn of phrase is is totally believable within the context of a series of utterly unbelievable tropes and cliches and motifs that for some reason have this like magical alchemy that are just i think i i think that the the accusation of relentlessly charming with all that it carries is fair but i i find it delightful i like i said i'm like i'll i'm drinking the kool-aid of this book i am all in i think it works i think it completely succeeds because it's just so fun to read and and it i find it I find it really just so fun and delightful, but I always feel like Tolls is like winking at me a little bit. Like, are you going to take this one? What about this one? Yeah. You want it? And I'm How like, far yes. can I take this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that yes, you're bringing up like a really, really good point, David, but I think it's a point that could be dropped into every other page of this book and every once in a yeah. while it's going to slip for first people for whatever reason. Um, everyone's on paper going to be like, really? I mean, I really, I liked the, I liked the the I liked the actress thing, but I'm not going to take the guy at the bar thing. But <laughs> like, um, man, maybe I've just spent more time in bars. That can't be true. Yeah. So. Um, <clears throat> no, I think David. One of the things that you're pointing to here, though, is really real, which is that this guy and the, the count um, looks down on himself for being so obsessive that evening, for staying too long at the bar, for for having another drink when this calamity was right around the corner and how could he have foreseen it and how could he have done something about it? And maybe one of the reasons this feels so artificial is that 
it kind of is. I mean, on the one hand, these are the biggest questions and the weightiest questions. On the other hand, in the face of your daughter needing surgery, they fall away instantly, right? So mm-hmm. maybe that's part of it. Like maybe there's a natural sense in which this conversation, even if it is the heart of the philosophical conversation that's going on, doesn't um, doesn't rise to the level of importance that that Sophia does. And maybe that's appropriate. I mean, that seems kind of true to life. I think, I, yeah, that's a good point. I think that I'm trying to decide whether or not the the question of believability is what I'm really uh, questioning. I don't know if, what the word is questioning, because you can read this as something other than realism. I think, and still wonder what he's trying to do. I guess because like. I, it feels to me like a little okay. Here, I think this might be what it is. I think a moment like that, unlike the moment with Anna, feels a little Deus Ex Machina, where he needs to create a character that is going to solve a ideological pro- problem that he is trying to. Oh, he he needs a solution. If he had had given us, if he had given us. A series of characters throughout the book or a series of moments where he's having conversations in the bar and they keep living up, they keep failing to live up to what he's looking for intellectually. And then suddenly we're given a character who, oh man, this guy lives up to what I'm looking for intellectually. Then I think that makes it more uh, believable is not even really what I'm trying to say here. Because again, it I'm makes not it sure. more like realism. That, like I think it makes it, it makes it, um, it makes it dramatically compelling. It makes it like you have been given a problem that the that, that moment then is solving. Instead of you're being given a series of ideas that are solutions to a problem he's never presented before. That makes sense. I see what you're saying. Whereas if he'd like, you know, if there had been this sense that he goes to the bar every now and then and he gets in these conversations and most of the people are just too dumb or too drunk or he just never finds anyone that's like on his wavelength or on his vibe and then he meets this American guy and he begins, this American guy begins to say things that are like making him think, then I think that like solves this problem that the count has. Here, I feel like the problem is not a problem the count has, is looking to get solved. It's a problem that the author is trying to get solved. I can so he drops that. an American, yeah. as American guy who is kind of the stand in, who I think this is why it feels like it's himself because he is, he is himself. He, he is solving the problem that the author has, not the problem the character has. I'm not saying this is not enjoyable to read. I'm just, I'm just, well, I'm just trying to think about how he goes about doing it. And when like, you know, these are the questions we ask when we're reading closely. Um, so I'm not, I'm not trying to be cynical or really even critical of tolls here. I'm just yeah. thinking through what his approach is here and why he makes the choices that he does. Because I, I do think when you ask questions that are the kind of questions he is asking necessarily demands and requests and you're asking and you're asking things of your readers that that it's difficult to live up to and um there's a lot of ideas novels that become just ideas mm-hmm. and i don't think this is one of them but how do you you know how can can you can, making sure you can live up the the characters live up to the ideas and the ideas live up to the characters is is a that is a fine aesthetic line 
Yeah, to walk. I understand what you're asking. And I actually totally agree with you on that. I, I love what you said, Ian, about that moment um, and the hope that it offers. But I think the novel would be better without that whole conversation. He solves hmm. the problem for us and takes out the conversation. He, I mean, I've essentially felt patted on the head. A little bit, what, yeah. You mean where he writes yeah. the, the, the letter that he writes? No, 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 no. The this whole conversation, the conversation about Socrates oh, okay. and about oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. we we don't write obituaries. And I'm like, okay, so as, have you First read First of Solzhenitsyn? all, what is this novel? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. I mean, we're not all condemned to life in a in a hotel like this. Right. Yeah, like there are the. Uh, Stalin killed 80 million people. I'm not actually very comforted by reminding us that people still read Socrates. So I did feel a little bit like you ra he raised these uh, really important philosophical, political, uh, religious, relational questions in this section and then told me like, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. and I was like, I don't like that answer. I'm worried. <laughs> I am still worried. Still Mishka. Yeah. Like, um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Which I don't think that that was his intent. I think I really don't, but I think David, that, that now that I understand your, your question a little better, I'll say, I think that there are some glib moments in the gilded cage that um, are maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that's the difference between Russian and American. Well, so, I just yeah. think, I just think that when you, as an author, introduce these ideas, you introduce you, 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 you put yourself in position to be to have these questions asked of your work and to have it examined in this way. And you know, it doesn't mean that the book is a failure, but like to say mm, that there's some limitations to Love the it. approach. To say that there's some limitations to the approach is is like I I we I don't you have to examine it like if you're going to bring big ideas into a book you have to be prepared to be questioned about the way you're introducing them <laughs> um you know i mean there's lots of ways to give someone a painkiller and some of them are worse than others <laughs> <laughs> ian what were you gonna say no, I, was I was just going to say, I think by the metaphor right there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, I think um, Heidi's got a point. It does kind of feel like he's patting us on the head a little bit there, except for the fact that his novel doesn't deal with Stalin killing millions. That's true. And it can't because the life experience of our main character isn't really touched by that. Mm -hmm. And maybe Tolls is, is asking us to consider that fact. Hey, your life isn't really touched by that. Um, what do you make of that? You know, you, you intellectual, you book reader, you academic, what do you make of that? All these ideas that you consider to be important. Well, sure they are. And, you know, until life experience steps in and makes them real. Um, and then they're important in a whole different category. And so I, I don't know. I think he, you're right, David, that he's, that he is opening himself up to questions like that. But I don't know that the point he's making with the novel doesn't survive that scrutiny um, because <laughs> the sunny, eloquent, maybe even glib at times discussions of these ideas isn't sufficient to handle these ideas. Right. And Tull yeah. seems to know that. I think you're right. I think it, what it does is it, it, it makes this novel um, like delightful to read over a cup of tea and scone and to talk about in a book mm -hmm. club and um, 
and and maybe isn't going to make you weep with despair in the shower like other Russian novels. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I actually do think that a lot of the questions that he's asking are really compelling. Uh-huh. And like the the theses that the various characters present are actually kind of worth worth thinking about. And totally you know, agree. The line, the um there's a couple of lines in there that I think are really like really compelling and really inspiring and really really moving. And it's just a matter of like the chosen genre. The way they're wrapped, I guess. Yeah. And I don't mean yeah. like wrapped yeah, by Yeah, I agree. M M&M. and M. I mean, that would be really fun. By Santa's elf. I, see, yeah. I would be all yeah. in on that for sure. Calling Lin Manuel. Calling yeah. Lin Manuel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can we get the Lin Manuel? <laughs> wow, that's actually an interesting idea. And well, version of this of this book would be. Um, I feel like Russian dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> <laughs> too far. We've taken it too far. <laughs> Why did you choose that instead of like Hamilton? Well, I I was just thinking about I don't know, something a little bit I don't know. That may that just didn't work. Can we just rewind that and take that out? <laughs> but now I'm thinking about what that would be like. I don't know if the conclusion of the Russian Broadway show would be <laughs> post your video on social media and all your problems yeah. will be solved and you'll feel human connection for the first time. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah, imagine if uh, the count had Instagram in the hotel. Oh man! Or, or he had the ability to like that. watch cable news. He 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 would like know so much more about the outsides, right? Of the, um, you know, or Google Maps. He'd be able to like go street view on all his old haunts. <laughs> that just sounds terrible. Oh my gosh! What a nightmare! Oh Lord have mercy! So we're gonna discuss chat, uh, book four. Book four. For next week, and then we've only got one more episode before the Q and A. So three total episodes on, on this book. Uh, Ian, where are you? Like, what questions are lingering for you? What are you? What are you interested to see resolved? Um, you just hoping to see more Anna. Like, what's the? What do we need? What do you need out of this book the rest of the way? <laughs> well, I am. I. It was confusing that Anna didn't show up again for the rest of book three after he like borrows her suitcase. That was a little weird. So I'll be interested to see how that relationship turns out. Um, I'm. I'm hoping for more plot. That's really what I'm hoping for. Like I, I'm dazzled by the prose and I like the philosophical conversations, but our conversation today has really helped me to settle into the fact that that's not the part of the novel that's working for me. Um, and so I, I would love to see him turn it up on the plot side a little bit and bring some satisfying conclusion of one kind or another to the Count's story. Yeah, we've gotten, we've gone through like 40 years of this dude's life and uh, not yeah. kind of like... Not a lot's happened in the last little while, except for yeah. time passing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. in the hotel. Heidi, what about you? I just want to see the bishop get his comeuppance. That's what I want. <laughs> I want to see Emil beat the bishop up. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> with, with, with a large steak of butter. It's right. <laughs> just a mound of butter. <laughs> That's good. Like a softball of butter. Chuck it at his head. I guess that's it, guys. Is there anything else you want to add? Mm-mm. No, I'm good, bro. <laughs> okay, well, Ian, what are you doing tonight? I am attending a men's Bible study where we are going to be discussing chapter one of Galatians. 
Ooh. What are you doing at 5.30 your time? Probably eating dinner. You should get on the Zoom and you should join us for our little uh, Close Reads live Q&A thing that we're doing. Okay. How long is it supposed to be? <laughs> I don't know. Until you leave. If you have to show up I for a while Bible and study depart is later. a good reason. That would be an acceptable reason <laughs> to excuse yourself. I will All try right. and stick my head Close in Close Reads just, Undead just Q&A. In. I did name it though. You I did feel like name I gotta, it. Yeah, you got to be right. there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pop in. I will do my best. Yeah. And everybody who's listening right now has already experienced you being there, which is going to be, oh, um, so be really meta. trippy for, for people who are, who are, who were there and they saw your face and they, well, and they saw you make the jokes that, then let like, me for just example, the joke that right you now. made <laughs> about a pineapple, 14. And three bags of Skittles. You have exactly minutes to come up with that joke. Because um, people are now going to be... Expecting it. on it. Got to be there, yeah. Do you need me to go over that again? Yeah, just hit, hit me with it one more time. <laughs> it's it's going to be a bag of Skittles, 13 no. Osaba hogs. You said and... three bags of Skittles, a pineapple. No, but what was the first thing I said? A pineapple. It was a pineapple, and then we kind of lost you there. A pineapple, and then I said 13 Asaba hogs. What are those? And then you don't know, oh, delicious is what they are. They are a rare um, heritage breed of of hog that is raised oftentimes like in the Carolinas, off the Carolina coast. And they're, I mean, anybody who doesn't eat meat right now is really mad, but they're delicious. All right. All right. Yeah. I feel like they would be I, good just, with pineapple, like grilled pineapple. Yeah, and like a whole while hog David and a spit. Watches people eat real meals and eat some Skittles. <laughs> no, 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 no. You <laughs> you are this is deeply insulting. <laughs> and uh look, the Skittles <laughs> are for like other times, not when the the hog has been roasted on the spit. How do you spell that? O S S A B A W. Okay. I'm gonna look it up. Thank you. Sean Brock, Sean Brock has done a bunch of stuff like on think on some of his documentaries and stuff like that. He also took Anthony Bourdain to a Waffle House. So not me. A good man then. A good man. I, <laughs> Heidi's refusal. Heidi and Graham refusing to go to Waffle House is like, you know what? In if I die before them, I'm gonna put it in my will that if I die before them. They have to go to Waffle House and order <gasps> seven things, and it's going to be like in my in my will that that, has that to surprises happen. me that wow. Graham is not down for Waffle House. Like what? Oh no, Graham's really That's picky mean. eater. Yeah, He's except when it comes drinker. to fast food delicacies of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. It's Waffle House, man. I guess he just thinks it's dirty or something. Oh, it is. Yeah, one hundred percent part of it, but also delicious. So, Heidi, you're missing out. All right. Well, I'm not going to miss out on the Asaba hog. This I this I vow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to, in fact, you know, Ian, like next week we're going to talk and she's going to have like an Asaba piglet, like on her like honest way, like in a crate. Piglet. She just holds like it like up. an apple, a pineapple. Yeah, she's like, this is dinner guys. tonight. Yep. <laughs> well, you got you to gotta raise it for a while before you want to eat it. Action. Uh, you know, take action. That's that's yeah. my motto. Do stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're yeah, a real man of intent. Yeah. <laughs>
Uh, I don't know why we're. I, I honestly don't know why we're still here. About? <laughs> How right. did we get here? Well, uh, okay. If you're still listening, we we appreciate it. Head over to closereadthe.substack.com to subscribe for more bonus content as good as this, and uh, and then of course be sure to check out um, everything that's going on over at Center for Lit, uh, all the courses and podcasts that Ian is involved with. Ian, what's the uh, what is the domain name? What is the link that people should follow to learn more about you? It is www. That's World Wide Web. www.centerforlit.com. Great. Well, everyone should go check that out and follow them. Subscribe to newsletters and all the things that one does. It's at uh, great websites. Uh, Heidi, anything that you need to uh, you need to plug? Confess. Well, I'm doing this bonus uh, or episode share. tonight um, with the podcast. In which we're going to answer heard about it. undead question. No, what what's undead? Us, the podcast, the question. I don't know. It's just undead <laughs> was vaguely Halloween themed. I love it. Well, I can't wait to see it all unfold. It's live because it's a live podcast, so it's yeah. undead. Oh, that's so. That's what it was. That's so it's good. Happening I'm remembering live. this now. All right, here we are. Yeah. Still here. It's time to go. Yeah. Well, for Heidi White and for Ian Andrews, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you.